I'm really looking forward to learn more about him because my chiropractor already told me that she saw his ghost. <gasps> so, wait, <laughs> yeah. What? friends and welcome to the 10th episode of Pine Copper Lime, the internet's number one printmaking podcast. I'm your host, Miranda Metcalf. First and foremost, I would like to send a special greeting to anyone who is new to our print fam who I met at the SGCI conference in Dallas last week. Hello and welcome. I'm so glad you're here. And don't worry, we'll find someone nice for you to sit with at lunch. Just so you know how things work around here, I release an episode every two weeks, and on the off weeks, I publish an article on the Pine Copper Line website, which features images and maybe a bit more information about the artist I'm going to interview. Pine Copper Line can be found on iTunes, SoundCloud, and because I listen to all you beautiful people and I care about your needs, as of this week, you can find the pod on Spotify, Google Play, and Stitcher as well. The best way to keep up with Pine Copper Lime is through our Instagram, which can be found at pine.copper.lime. And I am precariously close to 10,000 followers there. So am I going to do a giveaway? You bet your shiny copper plates I am. I'll be celebrating with a beautiful etching by Ben Barris, the star of episode 6. So make sure to follow me on Instagram as not to miss that one. So tell your friends, tell your family, printmaking forever Shun the non-believers, join the party. My guest this week is the lovely and talented Allie Norman. And let me tell you, this is a fun one. We get witchy, we talk energetics, we talk moon vibes, we talk Erwin Panofsky and dream journals and Kismet Litho Studios and prop planes. It's all the things. I can't wait for you to hear it. So without further ado, here's Allie. Hey Allie, how's it going? Hey, Miranda. I'm doing good. How about you? Good, good. It's, uh, it's nice to hear your voice again. It's been so long. <laughs> oh, I know. It's been a whole week. I know. Well, it was super nice to get to spend some time with you in person at SGCI last week. Um, it was a real treat, and thank you so much for jumping on the podcast with me so recently so we can talk about things. Awesome. Definitely. I'm excited about it. So let's see. So why don't we just kind of begin at the beginning, and Mm -hmm. I would love for you to tell me, or actually just like, let's just have you introduce yourself for people who don't already know and love you. Um, Okay. (laughs) So just um, your name, how you like to be identified, you know, professor, teacher, Instagram star, whatever your your jam is. (laughs) Um, um, yeah. Human being. Human so. being, first and foremost, um, yeah. Uh, I guess I'm Allie Norman. Uh, I guess, not I guess, that is my name. <laughs> um, I am mainly an Intaglio printmaker. Um, I also like all the other things, but Intaglio is my baby. I am an adjunct professor, but I also um, work on my own, uh, making stuff, selling stuff on the internet, odd jobs here and there. I am really working towards the goal of starting my own shop here in town uh, that would be kind of like a community shop, but that's kind of a long-term goal. I would love it if you could tell me the story of 
how you came to printmaking. Oh my gosh. Like if you had told childhood Allie that my life would look like this right now, I would be um, in pretty much in disbelief because I didn't know what printmaking was until I was probably 18 or 19. And I loved darkroom photography um, Mm. since I was really young and I was always in the darkroom and I loved the chemistry aspect, but I was also always drawing. So when I first took a printmaking class in college, it was an elective and it was stone lithography, which I find pretty hilarious now looking back as a printmaker who knows, you know, um, that that was my introduction. But, you know, all I did during that class was look through the doorway into the etching studio Uh and wonder, what are they doing in there? And when I finally started doing some etching, I was totally hooked. Not that I don't love lithography, but it wasn't an instant bond the way that I had with etching. Yeah. What do you think it was about etching that caught your eye from across the room and made your heart go faster? You know, it's funny. I always had really loved um, alternative photography processes, and I had always wanted to learn how to do daguerreotypes, even though it's like you you develop it with mercury and it kills you. Um, Yeah. But I, you know, that is also a photographic process on copper. I had like been interested in working on copper before. Like I had always been drawn to the copper surface. And when I saw people etching copper, I feel naive looking back on it. Like I really had no idea what it was, what they were doing or anything. I just knew that I have, what they're doing is like what I have to learn. And like the the first time I ever made an etching, it was like, I knew, like, before I even put it in the acid, like, this is it for me. Mm. Like, it was, like, an immediate connection. And it was, like, almost like I did it in a past life or something, like, refinding my past love. (laughs) Yeah, I love that. Of course it has this, like, amazing history. It's, you know, up there with woodcut as the oldest, right, of our Mm -hmm. forms. And I was actually talking to someone the other day, and they were – mentioning how it has this incredible kind of alchemy feeling to it, you know, when you, the way yes. you heat the plate and, you know, I mean, all of these sort of, um, it feels like you're doing something ancient and I could see that yeah. you finding a connection with that for sure. So strongly. I call it alchemy in my class constantly. And, uh, I actually think of it like as this tangible alchemical, processing of thoughts and ideas it's really similar to magic as you know you're putting all of these ideas and intentions and emotions like into something and then at the end it's transformed into like a new state I mean you could burnish and stuff but really realistically there's no really going back from the transformation that's so cool to me yeah Yeah, everything everything about it is totally intoxicating for me and that gets a little bit into, like, I know that your practice, it's its a bit witchy, you know? Um, it is. <laughs> and It becomes more and more witchy the longer I go. I, I, I don't know it. if it's the etching that makes it that way, but I'm drawn to it that way. I know that sort of ritual and energetics and that kind of thing is a big part of your practice, and it's something that really, I think, imbues your work with a kind of magic. And so I would love to hear you talk maybe about some of those rituals, some of those practices that become a part of your creating and how that reflects in the work that you make. Okay, yeah. So it's a little heavy, but um, I really enjoy 
the whole process. Um, so even like the cutting of the copper and the polishing of the copper, I feel like, you know, I love to have my hands in it, feeling it, you know, exchanging energy, I guess, with the metal, feeling connected to the earth. Um, I do a lot of strange rituals, like I will prep a bunch of plates at once and then um, leave them on an altar with candles before I draw on mm. them or like leave them out under the light of the full moon and like things like that where I feel like I'm like charging the copper with energy, which is just an interesting way to think about it. It's kind of like playing with your own psyche, which I think is what magic is all about in the first place. Mm. It's just kind of a little bit of tricking your subconscious into believing things and then your subconscious then manifests that belief into reality and so I really enjoy putting that ritual into it because you know the more I do it the more I can really see tangible results where people have like a strong feeling just from like touching the plate or touching the print because I do feel like there's this ritual aspect and I do feel like it goes so well with printmaking because printmaking in itself is so ritualistic. Mm, you know, we mm-hmm. talk about repetition all the time. And a, a lot of things in alchemy, like with chanting and things, was used to keep time for alchemical processing. So, like, to me, that's really fascinating um, in the way that we just do those things in a more contemporary way. But it's still very magical. I will combine kind of this tangible ritual aspect of printmaking with this kind of like deep weirdness that I have within me that I think a lot of us artists have I always feel like I have this thing I just like need to get out I feel like I'm going crazy after I haven't drawn for a couple days you Mm. know and so I do a lot of like journaling of my dreams I have a lot of lucid dreams I've always had that um but now I you know when I'm more intentional about journaling and sketching in like the middle of the night and stuff that's always really helpful I also do a lot of just like meditating on concepts that I'm trying to work on in my life and a lot of times those or things I'm going through and a lot of times I have developed kind of like this visual language where I use kind of these symbols and stuff to process my own human experience I guess in a kind of a journaly way that is maybe a little bit more hidden or occulted to the viewer so the viewer can kind of feel the emotion and magic of the piece, but maybe they don't necessarily know exactly what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Absolutely, yeah. No, I'm, I'm definitely right there with you. I, I think that in Western society in the 21st century, we privilege words so very much. You know, we privilege them over images and we privilege them over feelings. This is the the hierarchy of communication. But that's, it wasn't always that way and it's not that way, I think, in every every culture. So this Mm -hmm. idea that we can get to these other forms of communication, emotional and energetic and intuitive, through art making is one of the most magical things about art making and consuming art and communicating that way. So your practice being so aligned with that is one of the reasons I I love it so much. Oh my gosh, you hit the nail on top of the head. Like I have always felt like I have like a million ideas and thoughts and feelings and stuff, but I feel I have always had a a hard time with words. Mm. Um, I've never felt like I've been an elegant writer or 
even sometimes in conversation, I feel like the way I explain my thoughts, I'm like, you just trust me that it's so much better inside my head because <laughs> I, I think mostly in picture. And I do love a brilliant writer every time because I don't have that, mm-hmm. you know, but I do feel like I am expressing something that's worthy and valid. I'm just expressing it in kind of my own visual language. And, you know, the more that I've learned to accept and embrace and push that, I've, I've found it to be really successful. One of, the, one of the, the most amazing things about art making is the way it gets into the kind of genuine feelings, right? And, mm-hmm. and how something that's created from that kind of place of, of purity where you kind of get in there and you're, you're doing it because it's so in tune with who you are. And to a certain extent, you've managed to break down some of the ego, some of the agenda, some of the narrative. That connects with people. And it doesn't, it, it, in a way, almost the imagery is moot because that genuine spark of creation is what people respond to. And so it doesn't matter if it's bunnies or dragons or a house on fire. It's, it's like if somebody sees something, particularly if somebody who is, mm, I would say, just sort of like artistically sensitive, right, which, mm-hmm. um, which I think anyone can get to that point if they've, if they've been trained in art or if they're looking at art a lot, they can get to a point where they can feel that. Yeah. And, and that's what people are responding to a lot of the time. And that's what I think that some of the early theorists like Erwin Panofsky and um, Walter Benjamin, you know, when they're talking about an aura of art, that's what mm-hmm. they mean. And we're still working our way back to it. Yeah. And I think that something that's really cool that's happening in this generation of you know, science and technology is this coming back to the intangible, the intuitive, because we're realizing that maybe we are getting so advanced and there are still a lot of things that science can't understand. And maybe that's okay. And Mm -hmm. maybe it's good to have a balance of both things, you know, left brain and right brain. And I do think that also printmaking comes back to it as far as like, it's probably the most tangible and process-based form of art or even the print you can feel the deboss of the plate and you can feel the paper um but you know also using that to express something so intangible as like a fleeting emotion that maybe there's not even a word for in our language yeah if that makes any sense it makes total sense total sense (laughs) i love it i'd love to chat a little bit more about your specific imagery as well because you talked about you know you're using symbols is a way to communicate. And I know that journaling through iconography is something that you've done since before you were even a printmaker. Is that right? Yes. So, um, I mean, well, I've always been obsessed with like dragons and stuff, even since I was like six. But I guess that grew into like this love of religion and revelation and always wanting to know the like the crazy stuff uh, and the mythical and the magical and the absurd and the like elegantly beautiful and crazy at the same time. So I, a lot of those symbols, I think, not only connect to me from my childhood and from life in general, but they also connect with the collective unconscious of like everyone around, which is like a lot of symbols, especially the Ouroboros, like which I come back to often, uh, is like a pretty simple 
symbol of just the snake eating its own tail, which mm. is kind of symbolic of like the cyclical nature of life and learning and coming back around to yourself and coming back around to mistakes maybe that you made in another life or learning the same things, going through cycles and growing through that. And I feel like I'm in, and that also comes back to the repetition of printmaking where I feel like I'm always kind of in this like machine or this cycle of constantly having lots of plates in different stages. And, but that's something where it's a symbol that people have seen so much that they react to it without even maybe necessarily knowing what they, knowing what it means. Like they, in their hearts know what it means because Mm -hmm society it's so ingrained in society so yeah so part of it is it's it's yeah you're drawing on symbols that are ancient and then also you kind of have like your own language as well yeah Uh, so it's kind of a a weird combination where a lot of times I I don't know why I feel like a lot of times if I'm feeling really like powerful, but maybe chaotic or something, I end end up in like this serpenty place, which I feel like I end up there a lot because I feel strong and chaotic often. But also sometimes I'm feeling like, you know, vulnerable uh, or sad or something. And and then I tend to go towards the rabbit, which actually everyone always thinks it's like cute. But I'm always like, I usually draw rabbits when I feel like shit, but like, mm. <laughs> <laughs> which is funny, like, and, but it's very interesting, you know, how everybody responds to different things. Um, and even like being really intentional about the language, um, I'm currently just like started a collaboration with a friend of mine who is like an incredibly intuitive, I guess, witch. Yeah. <laughs> um, if, Bruja, she's amazing um but but you know coming she is like a writer you know and so working with her and and uh coming up with these kind of oracle concepts that are uh ever present in life and kind of coming up with our own symbols for those things through our own lens um has been really nice for me because she kind of sees things in these like concepts of words and ideas and I'll, those spark a lot of visual ideas for me. So it's symbolically like that is really interesting too. Whereas I used to just kind of go with the symbolism in my dreams mostly. And now I'm kind of out there seeking the images. Obviously they're coming to me in my dreams, but I'm also seeking them out in the world and other cultures and other ideas and yeah, I don't know. They're kind of it's kind of all over the place, but it, it synergizes eventually. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Your um your creatures often have these really lovely, almost like Byzantine halos about them. Yeah, yeah. Is that just sort of you know? So of course that makes them have like a sacred quality to them, and I don't know. It's it's but of course they're often very contemporary images. So anyway, I just think that's a, one of a great example of the way iconography is really playful and kind of timeless in your imagery. Thank you. Yeah, the, I love the halos because I always feel like, uh, well, I've drawn halos on things since I was a little kid. Halos and crowns. <laughs> and um, I especially love the way that that kind of takes you into that um, spiritual place or like kind of lets you know in a subconscious way that um, you're in like this dream space or this spiritual space or 
in a way, I feel like, you know, it's like this immediate recognition of a, like a dream space or a spiritual space or like the other, not in our reality. Because obviously, like you, yeah. unless you're seeing auras, you're not really seeing halos around people's heads. Totally. And so then kind of like maybe staying on the concept of early influences, you know, one of the things that uh, you're, you're very well known for and, and is very distinctive about your work, of course, is your, your, the cut plates. You do these really elaborate cut pl- copper plates. Um, yeah. But I also know that, like, you, you grew up being kind of handy, right? And, you know, working yeah. on cars and doing all that kind of stuff, too. So that's the working with the hands and the metal, that's not new either, huh? No, um... Yeah, I actually, like, my whole childhood, my dad was, like, building a little single-prop airplane in our garage. Oh, my god! So, um, yeah, uh, you know, it's funny that they spent all of this time in my childhood, like, teaching me how to work with metal and teaching me how to build a treehouse. And I was always the one that wanted to go to Home Depot with my dad. But then when it got time for me to go to college and I said I wanted to study art, they were like, oh, no, you can't do that. Really? <laughs> Yeah, um, it actually took some years of being undecided and floating around in art classes before I like really decided to take it seriously and got a bunch of scholarships for going to SCAD. Mm. Um, I just started like applying for stuff and like applied for it and then got accepted and told my parents like, hey, like I did this thing. Yeah. Um, and at that point, you know, they they were supportive, and now they're very supportive. Oh, um, I think they were just, you know, the natural fear that a lot of parents have, and I see this with a lot of my students too, is like, what are you going to do with art? Um, yeah. You know, and I think that it's such a cultural lie that um, that you can't do anything with art because, I mean, we're living in a, technolo- a technology-based world where so many things are being replaced by AI or um, robotics and things like that. Um, but, you know, the one thing that is never going to be replaced by AI is creativity. Um, yeah. And I think we live in a more creative and design-based uh, culture now than we ever have, well, at least in, like, contemporary times. And yeah, yeah. so I think, you know, the old idea of having to be, like, a doctor or a lawyer, I think, is very old-school concept. Yeah. Well, if you and you think about it, we're in a more visually driven time. Yeah, far. especially with social media. Like, yeah. Yeah, like by far than any other generation that have come before. Um, and and as you said, like with with design, people, the average person, I think, has much more of an idea towards design and art than they did fifty years ago, twenty years ago, even ten years ago. Um, Mm -hmm. because of the amount of visual information we can get, but also just because I feel like people's standards are going up because they're like, oh, I have so much more choice now. I'm going to go towards beauty. Yeah, and they're exposed to it. Yeah. Yeah. I have a friend that's a personal trainer. She knows nothing about art. You know, she still is like, oh, I have some artists that I follow on Instagram, and she knows their names and knows, like, their work and, like, can recognize that stuff, whereas I feel like even 10 years ago, um, that was not that common. Totally. Not as common. Not as common, yeah, definitely. So as well as being a, an artist and a craftswoman and a witchy woman, you are, you're also a boss lady. You 
run your own shop and you promote yourself really well. And I'd love it if you could chat a little bit about that kind of just nuts and bolts of being a working artist who is selling her own work and who is creating her own tribe online. And yeah, especially for anyone out there who, like we said before, might be a student who's kind of wondering like, okay, what do I do? How do I do this? That kind of um, boss lady art (laughs) selling brass balls side of your life. Yeah. Um, well, thank you so much for saying it that way. Cause you know, um, I feel like everything's always a work in progress and, um, I'm still working it out, you know, all the time. I just finished my master's degree last year. And once I started adjuncting is kind of a nice backbone for selling art because, you know, sometimes you have really good months and sometimes, mm-hmm. um, you know, you're making and producing, but maybe you don't have a lot to sell or, or maybe you go somewhere and you sell a lot of stuff at a fair, so it's it's not very stable. Um, and also, I feel like I'm just kind of getting the gears moving. I mean, the gears have been moving slowly for a long time, as I think the biggest thing to do is to not quit. Whereas I know so many people that I feel like are more talented than me that have quit making art because, you know, they get a day job and then, you know, slowly kind of give up on that dream And really, it's just a matter of building those things. You know, it doesn't come immediately. I remember graduating from undergrad and being like, okay, I'm going to move to New York and be famous now. Like, Mm. and, you know, um, it just, you know, it maybe works like that for, you know, 0.05% of the population that get really lucky. But the reality is that those really good established artists, especially in printmaking, it's all about mastery. And that comes just with practice and like time spent in the studio doing it. And I think that just continuing to push on, continuing to like be excited and to be excited about what others are doing and to be a part of the community is really just as important as the work that you're actually making. Mm, I really like that. That I think that is really significant is that it's not just doing your own thing, right? So one of the, the things that I always come back to is Surprise, surprise, I'm a podcast nerd because mm-hmm. you know, started this podcast. So, of course, Ira Glass is someone who I respect very much and yeah. followed him before podcasts even existed. And one of the things that he said that I always think about, he says, the most important thing you can do is a lot of work. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so I kind of keep that as a bit of a lodestar in my own creation practices. And, but, on top of that, I love what you're saying about it's not just like head down, white knuckling it, keep producing, but being excited about other people's work too. I think that is mm-hmm. really significant because we like creation for the most part, with a few exceptions, you know, it's an it's an act of communication. And exactly. Yeah. And so to be in that conversation with your colleagues. Uh, is so important and I think so inspiring for your own creating. That's one of the best things about teaching too is um, instead of just doing the same thing that you always do, which I have a tendency to always be doing the same kind of intaglio thing that I'm always doing, but I'm also always kind of doing experiments because I want to do a demo with my students where I'm like, Mm. what if they did this? Or they have a cool idea and I'm like, let's see how we can make that happen. And, 
you know, they inspire me and my colleagues are doing cool stuff. And, you know, now we have a laser cutter. So, mm. um, and then, you know, you could do laser cut wood blocks and then carve into them and like things like that, you know, ideas like that, that wouldn't push me if I was just alone in my own studio at my house working alone, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, I think that, and that's my main reason why I want to foster some sort of community shop here is because that doesn't really exist here in Tampa, Florida yet. There's a small one for letterpress called Print St. Pete, which shout out, they're amazing. Um, but there's no like Intaglio or Litho or anything like that. Um, so I would love to foster that because I know there's a lot of students, um, not only coming out of UT where I teach, but also USF, which has Graphic Studio. And I know they, you know, then they graduate and they have these skills, but no access to facilities. And Mm -hmm. then what do you know? They quit making art and then they give up on the dream or they give up on the printmaking dream because they don't have the money and time that it requires to build a shop. You know, so I think that by building up the community, you are also building up yourself. Absolutely. I'm so there with you. I very much believe that idea of a rising tide raises all boats. Exactly. Um, Yeah. Because I, and one of the things I love about what I see as a cultural shift in our generation to maybe the generation of printmakers who came before, maybe just artists before, is I don't feel a cutthroat competitiveness. You know, I don't, I I do think that that longing for, connection and really helping each other and realizing that that there is enough room for everyone um really fosters a great a great sense of community and excitement and yeah so I love that that's really good yeah and you know what printmaking does that really well you know printmakers are some of the nicest people you'll ever meet they want to share their shop they want to work together you know they're nothing is more fun than being in the zone printing and then your friend is right there in the zone printing on the press next to you, you know? Yeah. And you're like, look what I did, look what I did. And you inspire each other. And it's a beautiful thing. Whereas like, you know, painters are like in their studios alone, like feeling like they need to be better than everyone. Whereas like printmakers, <laughs> I feel like there's not that many of us, yeah. you know, we have like this really niche skill and, you know, uh, we speak each other's language and we want to be around each other. And, I think that's something that I was always drawn to, even the very first time I ever took a printmaking class was the community of the shop vibe, you know? Yeah. That's one of the themes that has come up in a lot of these interviews is... Really? Is that printmakers are great? Is it is that we're amazing? Like, <laughs> that's one of my, you know, the bags that I was selling at SGCI, you know, one of the things... They, you know, they had the name Pine Copper Lime on them. Mm-hmm. And then underneath it said, shun the non-believers. Shun, yes. <laughs> which is, that's, it's, that's exactly my attitude about printmaking is that, you know, we, get, we fall into this thing where people are like, oh, it's, nobody knows about us. And I'm like, we, our work doesn't sell for as much as paintings, this sort of thing. I'm like, screw that. Like, screw anyone else. Like, we're awesome you should want to be in our tribe, shun the non-believers. Like, we don't need them. We have each other. (laughs) Exactly, right? And, you know, if anything shows that people are interested in this stuff, it's the fact that, like, um, uh, I honestly find it hard to believe that I have the traction that I do on Instagram because, I mean, it was just me being excited about this dorky process and just, like, making (laughs) a bunch of videos. And then, you know, it slowly caught on and, 
you know, and really it just stemmed from like this love of sharing this weird nerdy thing that I'm obsessed with, you know? Totally, totally. Yeah. And now you have um, your, your 20,000 followers. You have, I think when we talked before, I, I said it was, uh, I was like, it's really like a whole stadium full of people watching you, isn't oh, it? Oh, God. And you were like, I'm just going to erase that. Yeah. <laughs> I can't, I like, especially like sometimes I'm like, I post like a stupid video of my dog on my story and like 2000 people looked at it and I'm like, that's very weird. <laughs> but you know, like I, I think it's fun. I think it's beautiful that um, I can be so candid with my process and my life. And also I have like also this really good barrier where I don't share a ton of personal information about my life or anything Unless it's like, you know, dog pictures or, or cat pictures, of course. Can't forget about the cat. I, I have a love-hate thing with social media. I think we all do. Well, and I think that it's, um, you know, that, that sense of getting to know people that we, that we get to have through social media is yes. so important to feeling that community across space and time. So it's, it's, yeah. it's not just here's my work, here's my work, here's my work. It's also, here's my garden, here's my dog, here's my, you know. And, yeah. And that's so important as a part of it too. And I think to really build that sense of camaraderie that we get. So when we end up at SGCI, we're all just like already having a great time together. Yeah, I mean, I literally saw you in a bar 30 minutes after I got to Dallas. Yeah. <laughs> and that's like the beautiful thing is that, you know, you see all these people online and you know their work better than you know their face. You have this instant connection because it's like, oh my God, I love your work. Oh my God, I love your work. And then you're like, you immediately do that nerdy printmaker thing where you start asking like, how did you do that one yeah. thing and that one print over here on the right side? Like, I don't know. It's just, it allows us a small niche group that maybe would only be able to exchange ideas this one time at this one conference, one time per year, to be in constant exchange of ideas. Yeah, totally. Um, so speaking of, of community and, and ideas exchange, would you, um, if you, if you feel comfortable, would you maybe chat about the tentative and exciting little opportunity that you stumbled into at SGCI? Yes. So I am very afraid to jinx it, but I, I don't think I'm going to jinx it at this point because I've already rented the truck. I have strong men coming with me. I'm going to go get it all. Um, so a printmaker in Jacksonville who I'm really looking forward to learn more about him because my chiropractor already told me that she saw his ghost. <gasps> so Wait, yeah. What? All right. I'm just going to jump in here for a quick second. Allie completely blew my mind up with her casual ghost bomb, so I didn't actually get the full story from her. But long story short, while she was at SGCI, she was in a conversation in which she learned that a lithographer, who she didn't know but who was driving distance from her home in Tampa, had passed away, and his widow was looking for someone to give his press and stones to. And guess who the bereaved chose? I bet you don't have to, actually. Just, just listen. Yeah. <laughs> okay. She, like, told me what he looked like, and so I can't wait to go meet his past wife and, like, ask for a photo to see if she's correct. Um, <gasps> but he passed away, and it's, uh, you know, it's a little litho press and, and a bunch of stones, and they're, they're cute. They're, like, small stones 
um, you know, like five by seven, eight by 10, mm-hmm. um, which if any, if any of you guys have seen my work in real life, you know that I recently, especially in the last couple of years, have been working pretty small. So uh, the one thing I think that has always held me back about lithography has been like, oh, I have to grain this giant stone. Um, so I'm really interested in, you know, I'm going to grain a little stone with another little stone. And now I have two drawing surfaces and I really want to share that with people. So, you know, I have an etching press at my house right now, just a little one. So once I acquired this lithography press, all of this happened much faster than I would have ever expected. You know, um, when I moved here to Tampa just like eight months ago, I said like, oh, you know, 10-year plan. I will, you know, have some sort of community space where people can come and make prints with me and I'll write grants and it will be a nonprofit. And, you know, we'll yeah. just share the love. You know, I, I assumed it would take me a really long time to acquire those things. And, and this opportunity just kind of fell into my lap. And, you know, all I want to do is just like honor that past of those stones and of the press Mm. and like that's another really magical thing about printmaking is that we're really good at honoring those that came before us and recognizing that as like a beautiful thing and like litho stones carry so much energy in them from being used and reused and they come from the ground and you're drawing on a big piece of the earth you know like that's incredible to me and so to basically acquire them from somebody whose life work was to do this is so inspiring to me. And it's basically like the litho gods saying, you must be a lithographer now. (laughs) Right? Yeah. But yeah, you know, I don't know that there is that many community shops that offer stone lithography, definitely not in Florida. So, um, and I know that there are students coming out of schools all over, you know, well, Ringling is not that far from here. And a lot of times people come from Sarasota and their first move is to move to Tampa. So, you know, there are people with these skills in town and then they just don't use them because they have no space. So So and I remember that being my number one struggle when I first graduated. And so it's 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 super new. And it's actually this Saturday that you're taking your strong men to pick everything (laughs) up. Right. Yeah. So, you know, it's just, you know six days away um, till I have this litho press, but I feel like it won't feel real until mm-hmm. it's like in my house. And I'm pretty much like planning on putting it where my kitchen table is right now. Perfect. Uh, it's, it's all so, you need. <laughs> I don't need a kitchen table. Talking to a few people and, you know, they're always like, you know, that's how it happens. Like the equipment finds you. Like, mm-hmm. And that's crazy to me because, you know, the etching press that I got, uh, I got it last year, and a friend of mine had found it in a junk store for $20. <laughs> and, you know, just the way that life kind of has provided me with these, like, magical materials with this, like, mysterious past makes me feel like I need to pass that torch mm-hmm. to others as well. Absolutely. That is really, really exciting. And um, Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> If people um, want to follow you and follow the adventures that, that you are, are so clearly destined for, where can they do that? So my Instagram is just Allie Norman Prince. Yeah, and I have links to my website and things like that on there. Very cool. And it's mostly all printmaking, but there's a recent addition to your stories 
as well. Oh, yes. Of my dog. That yeah. I found, whose name is Conrad, by the way. Of course. And you know, what's funny is I found the dog right before I went to SGC, decided to keep him, named him Conrad, got this opportunity and the litho press that I'm getting is a Conrad litho press. Boom. And so both of my presses are going to be Conrad, which is crazy to me because I was like, as soon as I heard litho press, I just assumed Tackage. So yeah. uh, I just feel like that was just like another like, hey, this is magic, like from the universe, you know? Mm-hmm. That's so good. So it's going to be it's going to be Allie and her Conrad's. It's got a good ring to it. Well, thank you so much for sitting down to chat with me again. It was a pleasure as always. And um, yeah, I will be in touch with everything. And please, everyone, uh, follow Allie and the Conrads. And uh, I'm sure that you've got a a lot of uh, many more exciting things uh, coming your way. Thank you so much. We will be in touch. All right. Well, that's our show for this week. Join me again in two weeks' time when my guest will be Wendy Orville, an amazing monotype artist, mother, and human being. We're going to talk about the creative process of making art versus the creative process of making tiny people. I can't wait. This episode, like all episodes, was written and produced by me, Miranda Metcalf, with editing help from Timothy Pauschak and music by Joshua Weber. I'll see you next time.